Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, this is Indigenous Peoples Day, and we're spotlighting the collaboration between Indigenous groups and the business and industrial sector. And there's some positive news there that we're going to talk about. As inflation continues to run rampant, there are those who simply say it's government spending that's driving the high inflation. Are they right or are they wrong? We're going to tackle that question. And what will the history books say about Justin Trudeau? Well, a former prime minister, a former conservative prime minister, has some pretty strong opinions about that that might surprise you. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Earlier in the week, uh, we told you about a landmark settlement uh, between the federal government, the provincial government here in Ontario, and and a number of uh, First Nations uh, up around the uh, the Lake Superior region about compensation that uh, that was long, long overdue, and that that was a good news story. Uh, today, we're going to talk about something more sustainable that's happening: collaboration uh, between corporate Canada and a number of different Indigenous groups. And there are a few examples of this that, that prove uh, that it can be done. And this seems to be almost the, the, the kind of reconciliation, I think, that many people have been hoping for over the last uh, few years. Joining us to talk about this is a Heather Exner Pirot, who is a senior policy analyst at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Heather, thank you for uh, jumping in with us again. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me. I, I I don't want to get too deeply into characterizations, but you know, in these projects, whether they were pipelines or mineral extractions are happening before, invariably part of that story, sadly, used to be protests from indigenous groups about these sorts of things going on. Uh, now there are collaborations. What what has changed here? Yeah, so so I work with a lot of indigenous uh, groups on this issue, and and you know, they would always say to me, "We're not against resource development; we're against being left out." Mm-hmm. And uh, and of course, that's a very fair statement. So they've seen, you know, for decades uh, and longer, the resources from the territories being extracted and they get none of the benefits, but they're often left holding the bag on the environmental damage and that kind of thing. So the kind of the biggest switch happened in 2004 with the Supreme Court ruling on the duty to consult. And that meant that, uh, you know, all of a sudden there was, you know, kind of a constitutional right of uh, Indigenous groups to be consulted uh, and corporate Canada had to consider their interest. And they did. And it was a it was a time, I think, you know, of some turmoil. Um, but now corporate Canada has gotten really good at negotiating, at finding benefits. We have procurement agreements, employment training, um, some royalties. And now we're getting to what people now think is kind of the gold standard in those industry and indigenous relations, which is having equity shares in these major projects. And we're seeing more and more pop up. And as I understand it, as I've looked at some of the uh, the, the prototypes that we've seen, uh, this is not patronizing at all towards Indigenous groups. I think they've probably, corporate Canada has also realized there's some expertise and some major advantages in working with uh, with some of these groups. They, they, in other words, they bring a lot to the table. Absolutely. It's a competitive advantage. And that's why we're, we're seeing so many people crowd in. Uh, the Business Council of Canada, you know, is recommending this as, a, as you know, an Indigenous loan guarantee program as a, as a policy um, proposal from the government. So, so business, corporate Canada has, has kind of come all in on this. And so what are those advantages for them? Uh, it de-risks a project. If a, if an indigenous group is a partner, if they actually have an equity stake, say, you know, 10 or 20%, um, up to 49%, um, then, then you know that they're going to, you know, they have skin in the game, that they want to see that project move ahead. They want it to be profitable also. So it makes it, you know, kind of quells any investor concerns. It brings them to the table in kind of the organization and, and influence of the project on where it might be cited, 
so it takes away some of those environmental um, concerns and it certainly makes things move faster on the regulatory side so that regulators are, are much more hesitant to stop or delay a project if all the affected indigenous groups are in support and so we're seeing you know really a win-win-win um, and, and, you know, Canada is so rich in resources, we can all benefit from it. We all should benefit from it. And this is a really good model for how we're going to do that. Well, maybe the best example of that was a few years ago when the major, uh, American company that was going to build the pipeline or pay for it anyway, walked away from the deal, uh, because it was held up in court. They just realized that there's, there's no benefit to us. There's no, there's no cost benefit at all to this sort of thing. Uh, this, this addresses that specifically, doesn't it? Simply to say, well, they're partners here. Uh, so, you know, it, it mitigates the, those sorts of things. There's still some red tape, I guess. There's always going to be red tape, isn't there, Heather? But but it, it's it's much easier, I think, to navigate it if you have these partnerships. Yeah, so where we've seen kind of the biggest deals um, has been in pipelines and now also transmission lines. The reason for that is that they are linear projects where they might go through the territory of 10 or 15 or 20. In the case of TMX, I think, you know, 50 indigenous, different indigenous groups. Uh, and that, that adds a lot of risk. So linear projects are very risky in Canada from the investor perspective. They have risk premiums attached to them. So yes, getting the indigenous buy-in in those is, is now, you know, it's not even a nice to do. It's, you know, if, if you want to build a pipeline, if you want to build a long transmission line in Canada, you need to have that indigenous support. But we're seeing that, you know, that is possible that uh, they aren't, you know, opposed to major projects in principle. Um, if the project is done right, if they get their fair share of benefits from it, then they can be your, your greatest champion for that project. Well, and, and there's an entrepreneurial spirit here that I'm sensing uh, within a number of, of, of groups within the Indigenous communities that are taking part in this too. Uh, we had a story last week about, you know, about the energy storage facility that's uh, that's that's been working for quite some time. Uh, and they're looking for corporate partners to jump on side with this because they, they seem to be uh, taking a very forward-thinking view on, on where we're going as far as uh, energy generation and, and consumption is concerned. And, and they're, they're right in the game. They're, they're playing a lead role here. Yeah, and I think we all see, you know, we have to build faster in Canada if we're going to meet our, our energy transition goals. Um, having an Indigenous partner helps you move that project faster. Um, it advances economic reconciliation because they're getting benefits from it. And again, it, it also brings federal support. Uh, you know, if, if you're looking for kind of those those green green subsidies, and everyone is on those projects, let's be fair. If you have an Indigenous partner, you're you're even way, way far ahead of, in, in the game of getting those. So um, some of those, you know, the, the power generation are also attracted to Indigenous partners because they generally are long-term stable revenue sources. So a mine is a bit trickier because it's volatile, it's boom and bust. You might go into production, out of production, uh, but a utility pretty much produces, you know, at a constant rate uh, and gets long-term contracts. That makes it like government revenue for those First Nations and Métis groups. Uh, so that the, so the power generation moving to electrification uh, has a lot of things going for it in terms of being very suitable for these industry um, Indigenous partnerships. What does it do for Indigenous communities when they, they can count on that, as you say, much more than they could in the past, uh, about revenue streams and, and some financial stability? Yeah, exactly. So so it's nice to get the big payout. Sometimes when a pipeline is, is built or a mine, you know, you might get a, a, a big payout and those are, of course, welcome. But being an equity owner in these means that you have this steady stream of, of, of income, like I said. They don't have a large taxation base. So if they want to operate as a government, they are governments, 
um, and have better operations. So invest in a school or hire some people. Those require some certainty. Hard to do that kind of on a cash one-off uh, deal. And so again, this helps them take up that governance space and be more self-determining so they can, uh, you know, we know that we can hire these teachers or we can hire these, you know, HR people or we can hire people to you know, fix the roads that they have that security that they can enter into these, you know, um, HR HR arrangements and be able to support this. We see people uh, building um, housing for elders, building youth centers, cultural camps. Uh, it, it, you know, the federal government money is never enough. It will never be enough. And so the more own source revenues that Indigenous uh, nations have, the more that they can control how they spend that money and serve the needs of their people. So again, it, it's, a, it's a win, win, win. Uh, it's, the, it's the model for moving forward in Canada um, and all parties are embracing it. Well, and I can see, obviously, as you mentioned, the financial benefits to Indigenous uh, communities, uh, but at the same time, job opportunities too, I guess, as, as those industries grow within those areas, uh, they need people. <laughs> and and that may mean, you know, that could be training to any number of different things here. It's it's a totally different mindset than it was a generation ago, isn't it? Yeah, I was at a conference, you know, um, it was a energy conference. So you had kind of the usual grumbling from industry about federal regulations and mandates yeah. and all those things. And then we had the panel on Indigenous uh, industry relations and the moderator made the point. We're now at the point where the Indigenous panel is the most positive panel of the day. Uh, you know, <laughs> we've got to complain the rest <laughs> of the day, but here's the bright shining light is the industry relations. And I thought that was so true and also so interesting and shows the evolution that we've seen in this relationship. Um, so, yeah, I have to say, you know, the resource sector has really stepped up. Uh, the power sector has stepped up uh, and Indigenous partners have stepped up. So it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a great story um, and, and it's great for Canada. Well, Indigenous Peoples Day and uh, the question we're always going to ask ourselves, of course, is are we making progress? And I think this is an indicator that, uh, yes, maybe not in leaps and bounds, but we're certainly heading in the right direction. Heather, thanks as always for this. Great talking with you again today. Thanks. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk money. Let's talk budgets. Let's talk federal budgets. Uh, we covered the story extensively, of course, uh, a week or so ago when conservative leader Pierre Polyev uh, tried to block the federal government's uh, budget bill from passing. Remember that? He said, you know, we want to rewrite the whole bill and, and you know, we'll spend the whole summer doing that. And then then he threatened to filibuster uh, the passage of the bill. That lasted a couple of hours until they turned the lights out and said everybody go home, and it passed. But his assertion, though, is is basically this, that government spending, especially the way this the Trudeau government is doing it, is what's driving inflation. And and that's exactly what he maintains, and, and he's mentioned that time and time again. Uh, and there are those that agree with him. There are those who disagree with him. Uh, you know, it, what is happening, and it's important to all of us. This is not just a political question anymore, uh, because uh, Tiff Macklin from the Bank of Canada, uh, when he saw the latest blip, said, well, we may have to raise interest rates again. And that's going to impact you and me in one way or another. So the question is, 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 does this government spending that's going on these days, does that actually fuel inflation? Uh, I want to bring our next guest in to talk about this and give us some perspective. Moshe Lander is a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Uh, Moshe, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Always a pleasure. Let's cut to the quick here. I mean, is is he a little bit right, a little bit wrong? Is is there a direct correlation between government spending and inflation? He's a little bit right. He's a little bit wrong. And there's no direct correlation. So uh, it's the perfect economic situation that everybody can claim they're correct and everybody can claim that the other side is wrong. 
Okay, so what what is happening here? I mean, uh, we we do know that you know on a, on a theoretical basis, as you've told us. Uh, you know, consumer spending is certainly a factor in this, but what about government spending? Because the other side of that coin people are going to throw on the table here is that's what governments do. I mean, you know, they're supposed to take our tax money and spend it on things that are going to enhance our lifestyles and, and a number of other things like that. So it's it's inevitable there's going to be government spending, isn't there? Yeah, and, and there's nothing wrong with government spending. It just has to be the right government spending. And so the issue really boils down to is if the government is spending on something that boosts the long-run capacity of the economy, that's not necessarily inflationary. But if the government is merely spending on something that's transitory, temporary, and not going to boost that long-run capacity, then it does have the capacity to be inflationary. So, you know, we now have to start doing line-by-line item analysis of the government budget and saying, all right, are you spending on stuff that is boosting that long-run capacity? But we've developed, and I think a lot of us probably have come to expect uh, governments to be there when when we hit hard times, and and certainly that the serb benefit comes to mind. Of course, during the pandemic, that might be an extreme example. But we're always looking for things like that uh, to say to try to get us over the hump or to try to you know help us out in situations like that. Uh, and and I, I know there are there are you know economists like yourself that are saying, well, that's that's not really what government should be doing. But we we insist on this, and governments do respond to public opinion. And that's, you know, where the disconnect comes then between Tiff Macklem, who's an unelected, uh, powerful uh, person within the economy, and politicians who are also powerful but do have to face elections, right? That's the nature of the, the democracy that we live in. So, you know, it, I've always contended that uh, it, it's almost like Plato's idea of the philosopher king, right? That when we, when we have a, a populace that does not understand economics and views the government as just one sort of nebulous blob and we say, well, the government should fix it, uh, it, it's much, much more complicated than that. And so politicians will often exploit the fact that the voters are not fully informed of what their government does uh, and they, they can run rings around them and say, all right, you guys want spending and that's what's going to win the election. Then here you go, spending for all. Uh, and when things go sideways, then this is exactly where we find ourselves now, that they start sniping at each other saying, you messed things up. No, I didn't. This is your fault. And uh, everybody just rolls their eyes and say, oh, it's kids being kids again. So it's, it's, it's you know, spending bad you know, during during these times. We, we, we get that. Does it matter what we're spending it on, uh, what yeah, consumers are spending it on and what governments are spending it on? Yeah, it's hugely important, right? So let, let's use a personal example then, right? So if you were to take, say, those CERB payments that you referenced earlier, and you were to use it to finance a Vegas long weekend, probably not <laughs> useful. Uh, I mean, you might hit it big, but the reality is that that doesn't leave anything lasting. Uh, but if you were to use that to, say, finance uh, going back and getting a, a master's degree, or you're going to go and, and uh, build an extension onto your home, uh, that is something that boosts your long-run capacity, right? So it, it's it's the same thing with the government then. If the government is handing out money uh, and all it's doing is just getting us through the next six months or helping us deal with inflation, well, uh, that's probably not providing long-run benefits and that itself could become inflationary. But if the government is handing money to people saying, this is to help you retrofit your home, make it more environmentally friendly, to try and reduce your carbon footprint, well, that does have the capacity then to boost the long run potential of the economy. And so it's still the same money going into people's pockets, but maybe the way that it's spent is having a different impact on the inflation rate within the economy. So how do you, I was going to say, how do you ensure that? I don't know if you can ever ensure that, but how do you, how do you, 
guide people along that path to say, yeah, the money's here, but you got to do this with it. Uh, you know, those, those, I guess, have to be very specific government programs with guardrails as opposed to what a lot of politicians love to say these days, Moshe, is I'm going to put a check in the mail for you, Moshe, and, you know, you go, go ahead and do what you want. You can spend it on your mortgage if you want, or you can go to Vegas. I mean, they, they don't really put any, any conditions on it. Yeah, and I think the reason that they don't is, again, because if, if we're playing politics with the economy, then if you were to try and pass some sort of legislation that said that you'll give me money, but it's conditional on how I spend it, I would immediately come back at you and say, who are you to tell me how to spend my money? Just give me the check and I'll spend it whichever way I want, right? And and any uh, opposition party would recognize right away that we could accuse the government of infringing on our basic freedoms and rights and uh and, and because the voter doesn't really understand what is what is necessary here, uh, that's where the potential for politics to trump economics comes into play. Uh, we could say that we should educate the the populace a little more in the basics of economics and how just all government spending isn't necessarily good or bad, but uh, trying to get 40 million people to wrap their heads around economic ideas maybe is a little impractical too. So. I, I think it's one of those situations where we just have to cross our fingers and hope that either there's a government that says, look, I understand economics, you might not, but I don't care whether you do or don't. Uh, this is good for you, whether you like it or not. Uh, but, you know, that that's really difficult these days. I, I think that uh, in a Twitter world of, you know, 100 characters or less, it's really hard to get that message across. Well, exactly. And and there's probably only a handful of politicians that seem to have the, the, the backbone to say this is the way it's going to be. Uh, I think you and I have talked in the past about uh, when Paul Martin was the finance minister and uh, our, our finances were in pretty rough shape and, and he made some tough decisions and uh, he wasn't getting Christmas cards from a lot of the people in the civil service but uh, and, and uh, municipalities because he basically turned the tap off. Uh, but it got us out of the, the hole we were in. So, and But you're right, that's pre-internet uh, and pre-Twitter and everything else. So, I mean, you know... Th- th- we we don't have those opportunities, nor do the the people that want to to, to tear those the minister down in that particular case. They don't have those platforms anymore. So maybe we can get away with it now, then, but not so much now. You're the scrutiny here is incredible. It, it is, and and you know we we've talked before um, when I've been on uh, about in this particular case, this prime minister grew up at the dinner table of another prime minister. Right. And so I'm sure that he learned some lessons about that, you know, his father would do things that says, you know, I don't care whether you like it or not. This is what's right for Canada. This is why you put me in charge and uh, we'll deal with the consequences later. But, you know, unfortunately, some of the decisions that he made, which might have been good for the Canadian economy, uh, have ramifications 50 years later, where, for example, the liberals are toxic in in Western Canada. Right. Um, At the time, it was probably the correct thing to do. Uh, but history has, you know, a, a different opinion on it. So I, I, I think that in general, politicians have an impossible task to play here where they can do what is economically right, uh, but they're, they're going to be scrutinized, criticized, and blasted in a way that they can't defend themselves. Even, even beyond social media, we have such a, a range of TV that if the prime minister went on TV 30 years ago, 50 years ago, uh, the entire country would see it. Now, the entire country would probably not see it because they're watching uh, a variety of channels that aren't going to be carrying that. So you can't even take a 30-minute bit of of time to explain to Canadians why you're doing what you're doing and why this is good for them uh, because nobody's going to see it anyway. All right. 
just if I can follow through with the, the government spending aspect again, if they were to, to see the light, as, as, as some economists would say, come on, you know, knock it off. Let's, let's be another phrase that we're all used to now, fiscal responsibility. If they stop spending in, in many of those areas, does it, is there a direct correlation between that and the possibility that inflation would decrease significantly if they did? Again, it's a little bit mixed, right? If they decide to cut all spending, right, some of that spending could be, uh, you know, pensions, uh, spending on seniors, spending on health care. That has the capacity to destroy the long-run potential of the economy, right? And so in that case, then, yeah, it, it wouldn't be inflationary, but it could actually have the opposite impact. So, again, the government has to decide that there are certain things that they absolutely have to spend on because that's just socially responsible and if it has other consequences, well, unfortunately, social responsibility maybe trumps those things. Uh, but again, it, it, it's not so easy to just say, well, they should just stop spending. They should stop spending on things that aren't delivering long-run benefits and that are not essential, and they can do their part then to try and remove some of that inflationary pressure. So the chances of, of governments actually getting that message and, and having it resonate are pretty slim. But according to the numbers we've seen over the last six to eight weeks, Moshe, it's the same deal with the public, isn't it? I mean, we, 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 we've been told time and time again, uh, stop spending money frivolously, and yet we still, still seem to be doing it. And, and so we're probably our own worst enemies here, aren't we? We're, yes, definitely our own worst enemies, uh, but we're probably beloved by the Taylor Swifts of the world that are making huge amounts of money because of our frivolous spending. So, you know, again, it's one of those things that... Um, when things go bad, we're going to look for a scapegoat. And it's the same thing with the government then, that when things go bad, you know, opposition says, well, you did this mess. And they say, well, we're better than you when you were in charge. And the same thing here. If interest rates go up again, then we're going to look for somebody to blame. And we're going to say, well, I guess this is the government then, because it couldn't possibly be me uh, that's responsible for this interest rate hike. You're suggesting Taylor Swift tickets are not a good investment then. I just make a note of that. I should not come to Canada anyway, so I guess it's a moot point. Uh, but, but, but along those lines, we always have to worry about those ramifications about exactly how we are spending it. Uh, and you brought up that ugly word once again, rate increase, or that rare, a phrase again. And Tiff Macklin is hinting at it uh, once again. Uh is is that imminent? I mean, do you, is some I saw one article that suggested that's like taking a sledgehammer to a flea here because there was a little blip, uh, but you know, little blips I guess can add up, can't they? Yeah, and I'm not sure that the reason for the interest rate hike was because of the blip that was the increase in inflation. It was because of the bomb that was the increase in GDP, where uh, a couple of months ago, you were having me on talking about the dreaded R word and could we be seeing a recession? And I'm saying, eh, if we have one, it's going to be mild and short. And instead, what we find out is the economy is growing at an above trend rate. Uh, I think that's what scared him was, whoa, like nobody seems to be reigning in their spending. So clearly uh, the interest rate hikes haven't had their desired effect. So here's another one to remind you I'm still here. And if he's if he's cautioning that another one might be coming, I, I, I don't think that he's doing it to say, uh, you know, don't make me do it. I, I think he's trying to give warning that somewhere in the next three or four meetings, there's probably another interest rate increase coming. How much of, of a, a factor is the, is the United States economy? Because uh, the Federal Reserve, the you know Tip Macklin's uh, contemporary, of course, on the other side of the of the border, has said they're nowhere to fit, nowhere near finished with interest rate hikes. That there's going to be a, a series of them probably going into the next uh, number of months. Anyway, uh, they can't do that and not have an, any impact on us, can they? 
Right. So when the U.S. increases their interest rate and we don't, usually what we see is that the Canadian dollar weakens. It doesn't necessarily happen right in that moment. It could be even happening in advance that if we believe that the Americans are going to increase and we're not, the dollar could start sliding today. Uh, when the Canadian dollar gets weak, of course, everybody knows it's good for exports in Canada and it's bad for imports. Uh, but if you think about what it means then that it's good for exports, it means that there's now another source of demand in the economy, not just local demand, but now foreign demand is showing up saying, we want some of your goods and services too. So that itself then could become inflationary, precipitating an interest rate increase. So, you know, to some extent, it's not just because the Fed increases their interest rates, we increase ours. It's that if we don't necessarily match them, then we have this possibility that inflation could seep in from foreign demand. We're not about to start putting trade restrictions on. We're not going back to blocking NAFTA and things like that. But uh, the Bank of Canada has to weigh do we want to increase interest rates to try and protect the dollar or do we want to kind of control our own interest rates when is the right time for us how much is the right amount and see what that does to export and imports uh and causing inflation uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily as strong as it used to be uh but their economy still exerts influence on us moshe always a pleasure thanks so much for spending some time with us today always entertaining anytime. and always educational anytime you're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister was uh, over in the uh, the Maritimes uh, just the other day and uh, got some very, very strong support from an unlikely source, actually. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Muhammad Ali, who is a senior consultant for Crestview Strategies. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Muhammad, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism, and there, there's an understatement about Prime Minister Trudeau in the last little while, his handling of certain key issues, uh, and, and he's been under an awful lot of pressure from his uh, political adversaries. Uh, but when he was in Antigonish to kick off this economic conference, uh, he got a lot of love from a former prime minister. Did you see that coming? Uh, I don't think a lot of people see that coming when a conservative, a former conservative prime minister uh, giving very, very high praise to, to a liberal prime minister. And so, you know, it was it was a, a refreshing take, I have to say, given today's political climate that Brian Mulroney, former prime minister, uh, uh, conservative prime minister, um, you know, giving a very, very warm welcome, but also encouraging words of, you know, speaking about Trudeau's legacy and and how it will leave a very positive impression uh, for historians to review. I think it was a well well needed sort of in the in the era we are in right now of high toxic uh, political rhetoric. Uh, he praised uh, Trudeau uh, for his what he called leadership of Canada through repeated crisis, including things like the pandemic and so many other things. Uh, and he says, "This is an interesting line. Uh, history will remember Justin Trudeau." Uh, for his accomplishments, not for the trivia and trash that and the rumors that are making the rounds in Ottawa these days. It's pretty harsh words. Very. And I think this, it's, you know, he comes from an era of where politics, you still have fierce debates, but you understand what is uh, out of bounds. And, you know, what he's alluding to is a lot of what some of the commentary from, from folks like Pierre Pulliver, you know, he didn't name him specifically on purpose, but, you know, the sort of insinuations of certain salacious rumors from uh, that have been debunked uh, being brought back up as sort of to get folks riled up and thinking about something that is not true. Uh, you know, I think there's a, a specific call out, but also in more broadly, uh, 
you know, the prime minister has has had to deal with some very, very tough issues. And the and and Brown Maroney was was front and center on one of them, which was the NAFTA renegotiation and dealing with Donald mm-hmm. Trump, uh, which I think conclusively for for uh, for most observers would say was one of the highlights and uh, positive outcomes under uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's leadership. You know, you're right about uh, the time and place. Uh, you know, Mr. Mulroney, of course, was very successful. He won one of the biggest majorities of all time when he won his first election. Uh, but the other element to this, too, is, as you say, the way the game is being played these days. And and I would guess, I'm, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and, and suggesting that Maybe Brian Mulroney is one of those what they call disenchanted conservatives. Uh, you know, we've got the center ice party. You know, that was kind of making some noise the last time. They're basically uh, conservatives of the old school, the middle of the road. You know, we we want to be middle right, not extreme right. And uh, there's a lot of people in that camp. And I would I would venture to say Brian Mulroney is probably one of those. I, I guess the bottom line here, Mohammed, uh, I don't think he likes Pierre Polyev's politics very much. No, I think that's very much clear. I mean, he's been very clear about that uh, even in the past iterations of conservative leaders in, uh, in the past uh, where he doesn't align or doesn't agree with how things are sort of moving along. And, and, and Frank, there's a number of conservatives who are, are of the Pierre Polyver camp who don't believe Brian Mulroney is a real conservative anymore, or it was, mm. uh, just because he came from a different era and uh, you know, conservative movement, just like any political party, has shifts and sort of slight shifts of its identity, its politics, but obviously this is a different conservative party given the, you know, it, it's a merger of three different parties, the Alliance of Reform and the Progressive Conservatives. So it is a different party and 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 there are a number of those sort of red Tories, as we call them, the Progressive Conservative wing, uh, that do feel like they have no place, no party to park their vote in or, or feel welcomed into. Um, and I think it was none evident by uh, how folks like Peter McKay and even Aaron O'Toole to a degree uh, struggled uh, to really capture the, the support of conservative voters or even find a fair fair place to, to make fair arguments. I think it was very much a let's burn our past and this is the current, current uh, iteration of the conservative party. So, which is a little bit different than what Stephen Harper did. Stephen Harper did try in, in fairness to, you know, and I'm not one to give a lot of compliments to Stephen Harper, but he at least had found that balance between the different wings of the Conservative Party, which any leader has to do uh, when leading a, a large a large political party like that. Uh, Mulroney went on to praise uh, the Prime Minister for what he called delivering on big ticket items. And uh, he talked about, as you mentioned, the, the renegotiation of the NAFTA deal, which uh, was interesting because as it was Mulroney, of course, they crafted the first deal. Uh, North American Free Trade Act uh, and uh, a number of other initiatives too, and but he did that with the, against uh, Ronald Reagan, who was president of the U.S., and then George Bush Senior, uh, and uh, was pretty successful in that. And uh, and he compared that to what the prime minister said to deal with in, in Donald Trump, and said that that makes what he accomplished even more amazing that that he got around Donald Trump and got a good deal for Canada. Uh, so th- this is a guy that ha- I guess more than a lot of other people ha- has perspective because he knows how it, how much work it takes to actually negotiate deals with the U.S. president. Yeah, it's not easy, and especially when you're dealing with with uh, a very unpredictable, unstable, uh, you know, negotiating partner in Donald Trump. So uh, Brian Mulroney, and, and you know, he closely tried to advise the prime minister, and the prime minister did, you know. Uh, have a multi-partisan approach. You know, he had former conservative cabinet ministers like Ronald Ambrose and James Moore, who 
or helping advise and, and guide through this renegotiation. But there's also, you know, the pandemic. You know, the leadership throughout the pandemic was um, was probably the most difficult for any leader to to take on. And I think Justin Trudeau, uh, even his distractors, would agree that you know, given the circumstances, given the challenges, and and obviously an unprecedented in, in a couple of generations of 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 dealing with the pandemic at this level, uh, led the country pretty well and got us out of it. And I think, uh, you know, the, the overall compliments and acknowledgement that Brian Mulroney shared are, are, are really objective, not, not to be seen as partisan. They, they really are coming from someone who understands what it takes to, what the difficulty of the job is in that seat and, and, and the difficult decisions one has to make and, the, and balancing priorities and, and issues uh, impacting Canadians and others. Um, you know, he understood that, and I think it's it speaks highly for 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 Trudeau for his uh, legacy. As as I was reading this story, I, I couldn't help but harken back to 2015, um, and Brian Mulroney was kind of a voice in the wilderness, and he actually, if you recall, I know you do, uh, cautioned Stephen Harper at that time, "Don't take Justin Trudeau lightly," and uh, because I think there was an attitude within the Conservative caucus then that, "Oh, this guy's a lightweight," you know, he doesn't have. Uh, the, the the stuff it takes to, to actually be a leader. And Mulroney was quite vocal about this. I remember an article in the National Post uh, where he said, this guy's got some political smarts and, and he knows how to win. And again, here's a former conservative prime minister talking about uh, the guy from the Liberal Party that's trying to unseat his party in power. But uh, I, I don't know if Stephen Harper heeded that warning or not, because, I mean, Trudeau ended up winning a huge majority. But he's always seemingly had some respect uh, for Justin Trudeau, hasn't he? He definitely has had, and obviously we we know uh, from from reviewing history that Mulroney and Pierre Trudeau uh, butted heads quite a bit and had oh, a very yeah. fierce rivalry, and um, and we're we're not uh, too friendly with each other. But you know, just demonstrating that sort of statesmanlike and uh, understanding what is good for the country um, and and how, what what it, what it takes to lead uh, and seeing what the characteristics of someone who can who can mobilize the masses similar to what he did to win that that mega majority uh back in the day you know he was right about making sure you watch out for Justin Trudeau because he had an ability to connect with people um, and i think that's that's meant to be tried and true over the years that he has been able to have the the emotional iq necessary to understand where the population is at and how to communicate with them. Um, and so I think that it's, it's also a self a recognition of, uh, of the different personality traits it requires to, to, to lead this country. What's interesting about that. And it's well documented. You're right. Uh, the Mulroney's senior, uh, and, and Pierre Trudeau did not like each other. As a matter of fact, there's a great deal of animosity there. Uh, but that seems to have changed, and, and, and I'm wondering if, if it's this, the second generation that's really done that, because we also know uh, that Justin Trudeau and, and the Mulroney children grew up in Ottawa together around the same time when their parents uh, were trying to run the country, you know, one over the other. Uh, and I know Ben Mulroney and Justin Trudeau have become very good friends over the years. They were at each other's weddings, and I guess they still communicate. I, I, that must have had some sort of a factor in, in Brian Mulroney taking a bit of a different uh, perspective, I guess, on, on Justin Trudeau anyway. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, Brian Mulroney didn't also have to go out of his way to compliment Trudeau, right? There was no one was pleading for this. No one uh, called it necessary. Uh, so, you know, Brian Mulroney doesn't need to be told what to do. And he took it, took the opportunity to 
acknowledge the Prime Minister Trudeau's sort of legacy and what he's done as a leader, what he's accomplished, the challenges he's gone through. And yeah, they, you know, there's a friendship between his son, the, you know, the, the two men of Ben, ben and, and Trudeau. But, uh, you know, you don't have to go as far as Brian Mulroney did uh, in terms of uh, complimenting and acknowledging the, the, the tremendous accomplishments that Justin Trudeau has made as being as prime minister. Uh, it's uh, I don't I don't know what the political uptake on this is. Uh, you know, uh, Mr. Polyev clearly, as you've just mentioned, uh, doesn't like the kind of conservatism that Brian Mulroney uh, practiced during his time as prime minister. He has taken the party in a totally different direction. Do, do you see any political uh, ramifications to this, or uh, them that don't like him are still continue to not like him? And and but you know, it just doesn't seem as if uh, Mulroney may have the same sway that he he once did within the Conservative Party, especially. You know, I don't think the it will change things dramatically. I think people had long understood where Red Tories stand with Pierre Polliver and, and this party. I think it, it'll be on Pierre Polliver to win and convince uh, those Red Tories to come back into the party and be active and see that they have a, a space within the new conservative movement. But that is going to be a challenge for him because he does need to... Uh, understand that uh, much of the country falls into that sort of centrist area, whether you're a bit of a, you know, on the liberal mm-hmm. or, or, or the conservative side, you know, that's where historically governments have have fought and, and, and governed from uh, for the most part. So to veer too far away from it on either side of the coin, you alienate a lot of voters. And so there is a space to re-engage those very people that would have Align with Brian Maroney, whether in the back in the day or even today, um, and I think they find a, a hard time believing anything right now about what the Conservatives stand for when it comes to issues that uh, resonate with Red Tories. Exactly. Well, it's going to be interesting to see just how the reaction is within that caucus. But we'll get to that another day. Mohammed, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.